Today on the MCJ Capital Series, our guest is John Tuff, Managing Partner at Energize Capital. Energize Capital is a leading climate software investor. They partner with best-in-class innovators to accelerate the sustainability transition, and they have both an early-stage traditional venture vehicle as well as a growth vehicle as well. We have a great discussion in this episode about the origin of the firm, what led John to helping start the firm in the first place, his early career at Kleiner Green Growth, and the very successful startup that he was employee number three at, Choose Energy. And we also talk about the approach at Energize, the LP mix, how that's evolved over time, and how much overlap there is between the LP mix and the venture vehicle and the growth one. We talk about what John's been seeing in terms of the changing macro environment and how that's been affecting LP dollars flowing into climate tech. And of course, we talk about what types of companies they look for, their check size, whether they lead or not, their diligence process, how much of it's thesis driven, and what you can expect working with them when it comes to post-company support. Learned a lot in this one, and I hope you do as well. But before we start... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, John Tuff, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. I'm excited for this one. You... Like my last guest, Ben Portlang, you are a veteran of clean tech before it was called climate tech. That's right. And you also are growth stage and you also are software focused and a climate fund, which is going to like ruffle all these feathers and get some crazies upset. And you're in Chicago, which is not the most common thing for a venture firm. So, so it feels like there's a lot to talk about here. And you're, I was going to say your personal PNR fund. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Yep. All of those facts are true. I hope that the last one is not as rare in the future. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming. Maybe to kick things off, talk a bit about the recently renamed Energized Capital and what you do. Yeah. So the firm began as Energized Ventures. We've been in the market since 2016. And at first, we had one strategy, which was venture capital leading Series A to Series C investments in climate software companies. So the mega trend of climate, the mega trend of digitization, leading investments there. The space has grown, and we can talk about some of the metrics that we measure to track growth, but the space has grown so much that about 18 months ago, we launched a growth equity strategy as well with a new leader of that strategy within the firm. And then we just closed on the fund there, bringing 300 million of total capital into our growth strategy. With that, we decided to rename the firm to Energize Capital so we could have the two strategies venture and growth. Got it. And venture. So you, you're one fund in on the venture side? We've raised two funds on ventures. The most recent one, a $330 million fund that we closed in 2021. So we were in that three-ish year fundraising strategy for each of them. How did the firm come to be? And why did it come to be? Yeah. So why? I mean, you mentioned Ben. So I've been in climate now since before it was cool, since before it was called clean tech. My first ever job was at UBS, which is actually the building right behind me here in Chicago. 
I was a biology and chemistry major, and I was hired in a bank because clean tech in 2006 was bioethanol. And guess where they make a lot of that? Here in the Midwest. So bankers were rushing to take bioethanol companies public. They're the big new technology. So I got hooked into the space back then, and I've been doing it ever since. I moved to the West Coast because that's where I thought I had to be to be in innovation for climate and began my kind of investing career at the Kleiner team that was called Green Growth Fund. Loved the experience, felt like I wanted to be an operator. So I left to become one of the early employees of a firm called Choose Energy back in 2012 which was an energy marketplace. So digital software marketplace for primarily renewables. And I saw firsthand the opportunity to create a more capital-like business that also still accelerated renewables. And I was immediately hooked. I, I saw firsthand in the 2000s how hard it was to grow an infrastructure firm with climate, uh, with venture capital money. And, and so I've always wanted to be on the, the software and more capital side of the equation for investing. That was the origin story for for Energize, which we launched in 2016. And what came first for you? Was it the seeking to become an investor capital allocator or was it seeking to do something in climate? And how did those two ultimately come to intersect? When you're a biology and chemistry major, you really want to solve problems and system problems. So I've been most interested in how the whole system works together. I've been that way since high school. And so I was just fascinated from the early days about how new technologies could drop in cost over the course of five years and how entire systems would be built around them, infrastructure systems, services systems, and then software. And so after my experience operating at Choose Energy, I wanted to be able to help scale the next generation of companies. And I wanted to get back to the investing side, which is you know the reason I was one of the first members here at Energize. And when you think about scaling software and you think about the energy transition, what is different about, and actually, let me ask another clarifying question. When you think about, do you think about it as climate or energy, or are there sectors that you focus on? Because it seems like one of the big differences between clean tech 1.0 and now is that clean tech 1.0 is very energy focused, not exclusively, but pretty. And climate tech is the entire global economy. So how, how do you think about it at, at Energize? Yeah, I mean, I think if, of the, 30 firms that do this full time, I think we all have a different definition, which makes it pretty fun, actually. When we launched the firm, that it was that idea that climate is broader. It is the energy transition. It's the carbon markets. It's resiliency, which is both infrastructure, climate resilience, and cybersecurity resilience. And then this huge bucket we call industrial digitization, which is built environment, critical infrastructure, you name it. And our broader belief is anything that helps digitize that ecosystem helps change happen faster. Climate broadly is about how do we help address the change that's happening around us in a more immediate timeline. I think we all know we could let utility sales cycles be regular for the next 20 years and a new innovation would happen then. How do we pull it all forward? I think the climate investors in the market today or whether it's energy or critical infrastructure, whatever it is, it's how do we pull the future here a little faster? And that's how I kind of define our segment. And so... Gosh, I, I mean, I have a bunch of questions. One question is, so you started as a VC and then you became an operator and then you went back to VC. Talk through that a little bit because I'm finding, and technically now I'm a VC, but it, it's quite different than, than... You're a VC now. <laughs> you don't know it yet. I, uh, as a firm, we are. What I am, yeah, I guess I'm still sorting that out. But talk me through a little bit the decision process and also just what you're finding is similar or different about the two paths. So when I was fortunate to be at KP, 
meeting a bunch of great firms with that team, I realized that most of the entrepreneurs who were coming there were coming for the name that was behind me on the door. It was, they're coming for Kleiner. And I was just, I'd go home and I really be like, oh, I really want to be able to provide something that is unique to me to help these entrepreneurs scale. And so that's why I wanted to leave to go be an entrepreneur. I wanted to go be the third employee at the company. We sold it in 2016 and it was a successful exit. And I just, I felt like I needed that experience. I needed to be in the trenches so that when I was on the other back on the other side of the table, that I could speak as an operator to the entrepreneurs. And in most of the boards I'm on, and I'm fortunate to be on today, that is my relationship with the company. There are many financial investors. There's not nearly enough investors who have the operating background. It's helped us win deals. It's helped us connect and help solve problems faster. And I feel like I am a better investor and operator of Ultimately Energize as well because of that experience I had at, at Choose. So when you went to Choose, did you anticipate that eventually you'd want to find your way back into venture? Yeah, I'm curious. I think I'm different than, I don't know how you thought about MCJ when you launched it, but I have like five-year plans. And it was on the five to seven-year plan of getting back onto the investing side of the equation. I was at Choose for exactly five and a half years before it was sold. And I was in the Bay Area still. And I, I came to this life moment where we had our first son. And I knew that if I stayed in Bay Area, it'd be another five to seven years. I had to believe that I could work innovation and climate, not in San Francisco. I was like, I really thought I had to be there. And then one day I woke up, spoke to my wife. And I'm like, it doesn't matter where you work anymore. Like it really doesn't. It's about the community you create around you. I think you've done a great job with that at MCJ. Thank you. And like all of a sudden it clicked and now we're energized. We have 25 employees here in Chicago, 1.2 billion in managed capital these days. And it feels like the first inning. So I want to unpack that. So you have the successful outcome. You had that transition point where you determined that you wanted to go to the Midwest. Did you have roots there, by the way, or what led you to the Midwest? Yeah, I'm Canadian. And growing up, I lived in the US, Canada, and England. My wife is from Chicago, and it's an incredible city. So I had no ties to really anywhere in the States. But I did like the centrality. I did like the Midwestern ethos. And we've actually adopted a lot of that ethos here at Energize ourselves. And so what came first? Did you decide that the next step was building a venture firm? Or did you decide that you were going to anchor in the Midwest and figure out what you're going to do? Like, how did you ultimately end up doing what you're doing, where you're doing it? I anchored in the Midwest. And then for about six months, I actually, I got an office downtown away from the house, away from the kids, just so I could like think through options, create some structure. And Chicago and the Midwest in general has really boomed in terms of their own investment community. And so I spoke with a bunch of great firms locally in, in the Midwest, primarily. I woke up again and I was like, I need to work on something I care about. Like, listen, I think there's incredible innovation in the next app for consumers. I think that the data infrastructure layer for Amazon is really cool. It just doesn't grab me. And as somebody, I was, I was a chief revenue officer at the company I, at, at Choose. I need to believe in what I sell. And if you don't believe in it, you, you won't do it for a long time. It's just going to be a blip. And I wanted this to be my last job wherever I went next. And so when Michael Polsky of Invenergy called to say, hey, we're launching this effort, you want to be part of it. Uh, for like a week, I was like, oh my God, am I going to be back in climate? I love it, but like I hate it at the same time. And then again, I was, of course, I'm going to be back in this. This is it. This is what I want to do the rest of my career. And how did he describe the effort at the time? And where were they? How far into the effort were they? It was super early. So there was three folks working on it. There was Michael Juan Muldoon, who's a partner here, and then Amy Francetic, who's now at Buoyant. And it was zero. It was early stages, no capital raise. But the concept was this. The Midwest has an enormous number of 
energy, renewables, and infrastructure companies. The Fortune and the Fortune 2000, like most of them, are within 100 miles of Chicago. They know how to operate big assets. They know how to think about the next 20 years. What they are not good at is software and digital solutions. Let's reach out to those groups, see if a few will become LPs, and see if we can learn from them the problems that they have, and then we go to them with the answers. And I think what was kind of opened my mind was, when I've been in other investing roles, it's usually what's the technology, let's go find the problem. And climate has to be, what's the problem, let's go find the technology. Because if you're too early in this space, you lose all your money. And, and so I loved that combination. The first step, it sounds like, was almost customer development with potential funders, but also to understand what their pain points were so that, and then use those pain points to then form an initial thesis? Correct. That's well summarized. And the beauty is the customers know. They know what they want to buy. They know the problems they're going to have budget for in the next two or three years. And when you're launching an earlier stage venture firm, you need your first few deals to go pretty well. This is a simple answer. And so being able to de-risk the first few investments, and I'm happy to talk about a few that and how we de-risked them, was really important. And we proved that the network provided that intelligence. And then we were able to convince a few of them to become LPs. Well, I do want to hear about those investments, but I don't want to jump there because I want to understand first, like, okay, so you started doing this customer development. So what do those next few stages look like? What were you doing? What were you learning? How did it go? Were there key inflection points along the way? Any, any color to just help us get in your head from that time? Yeah. The beauty of being in the space for a little bit longer is the issues of five years ago are still probably the issues of today. And then the question is, has a technology emerged to help solve it? And so from experience, just as an example, like I knew that decentralized assets were becoming harder to manage. A power plant used to be a big central asset. And now there was rooftop solar, there's EV charging. A utility has a huge problem trying to monitor these assets and deploy them. And so knowing a few of the problems just created a simple market map of here are the problems we think you're having or you're about to have. And this is a big key. We would not go to the innovation groups of these firms. Every Fortune 2000 firm now has a chief strategy officer or a chief innovation officer. Their budgets are fleeting. Their budgets change year to year based on what's in the Wall Street Journal. We would go to the GM of a business unit that we knew had the problem, more or less, and we would get the budget from them. The LPs who have committed, it came from a business unit, not from a innovation budget. Interesting. So, I mean, I would think that I'm way less experienced working with strategic LPs than you, but it would come from a ventures or a corp dev group that maybe did directs alongside of fund investments, but you actually got them from GMs. Were these GMs, did they tend to have experience doing fund investing and or direct investing historically, or was this a new concept for them? This was in 20, you know, 16, 17. It was pretty new. And so we were convincing them to create a budget. It's like you had RunKeeper. You almost need to, there's education and then there's budget creation. It's really hard to like create budget, but when you're early, you have to. And so we would create a few examples of how our investments would deliver feedback positively or negatively to their decision making and be honest about it. And once we got the first few, that reinforcement from those groups helped bring in the next, you know, every incremental one tended to be just a little bit easier. Not, not that easy, but easier. And what was the pitch to these GMs? Yeah. So the pitch, even if you're strategic, the pitch has to be financial first. That was a big takeaway for me. No organization, no GM who's going to take their capital from their budget and give it to you is in the money losing business. So financial first returns, even though you're investing in impact, has to be the goal. And then number two, we, through our investments, will help identify 
invest companies that you may partner with or become a customer of to help accelerate your path to a more sustainable future. That was the pitch. We've made 25 investments fund firm life to date. Uh, 21 of them have a customer contract with one of our limited partners. And so what about the customer development and understanding the problems versus the thesis evolution? Like, how did that go? And how did you balance making sure that the thesis matched the needs of the customers with making sure that you weren't optimizing around the needs of some edge case of a, of a particular customer versus the broader market? Totally true. So the key for us is that the way we do deep dives here at Energize is that we know that problem, like I mentioned, an investor needs to hear that problem a few times before they raise their hand and say, hey, I hear a repeating issue. I want to go find the technology that solves it. So there cannot be an edge case in how we approach it. Maybe the other benefit here was the first few LPs were on the corporate side. We were always clear that our goal would be financial first. We would not include the corporates in our investment process, technically. They would provide information. They might get customer intros. And so after the first 45 to 50 million came from corporates, the rest came from non-corporate. And so it was that reinforcement mechanism and access to information that actually excited then our institutional LPs. It excited our big family offices to then join and really commit to the fact that our LPAC, our firm, will be financial first. We have this special relationship. About a third of our capital today comes from corporate entities, but it will always just be a part of our process and it will not drive the process. When you think about the, the motivations behind the firm and the funds, is it purely profit-seeking or does impact play a role? And if impact plays a role, how do you think about impact? Yeah. So we, the way we feel about it is we're all here because this space matters to us. I do believe that 10-ish years ago, you probably had to make a sacrifice financially to get a big impact. We don't feel that way anymore. So we are financially motivated, we are impact motivated, and we don't think you need to make a sacrifice to do both of those. We, with every investment, have an impact strategy. We, in our term sheets, we have the companies commit to tracking specific KPIs around impact and ESG that we believe are important. On a company-specific basis or standard across the portfolio? Yeah, we have about 10 across the portfolio. And then depending on the company, we ask them to commit to a subset of them based on what we think is relevant to the business. And we put that in term sheet. We track it quarterly. We have a head of impact and ESG and Lauren Densham here who we have an ESG committee amongst all of our LPs. And we report that. It's been incredibly uh, well received by the companies and the LPs. How much do you balance thesis driven versus opportunistic? Do you ever stray from the thesis because you find an exceptional theme and opportunity? Or are you really just out hunting to fill specific voids in the thesis that you define? Yeah, within the fun part about our space is that every few years, it surprises you about how certain technologies get pulled forward. Five years ago, you weren't hearing about direct air capture at all. Now it's here. Same in hydrogen. Obviously, solar and wind and batteries have been pretty active. We're generally looking at the problems that can be solved the next two to three years uh, within our venture strategy. And that means finding areas where there's already some established footprint of the infrastructure and where software does best is helping the infrastructure scale. And so we're looking at you know, the S-curves of technology and saying, which technology today is most ready to scale? And then let's go find the companies that will help them. So we're big believers in the carbon markets. I know we've invested in, in Patch together. Those types of businesses that enable the next generation of infrastructure and sustainability companies to exist, we look at investing there. 
And now that you have the two different approaches, the uh, the more traditional venture and then the the growth, are there separate teams that manage each of those or is there overlap across? And same question in terms of investments, does the growth fund tend to pick off um, companies that come from the venture side first or are they outplaying their own game? Yeah, good question. You're asking questions like an LP does, Jason. It's kind of like pledging. It's like, who are the people that like, you know, are the toughest on the pledges, the people that, you know, that got the toughest time when they were pledges. So pay it forward, right? Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you've been trained well. So we felt that it was important to separate the strategies. We felt that we needed a strategy lead for each. Juan, Muldoon, Tyler, lead ventures here. Kevin Stevens heads our growth strategy. So separate teams, separate analyses. About half of the capital from our growth funds will go to existing ventures deals, but through independent. And that's a really big part for LPs. They don't want you marking your own book once you have a critical eye. And this is the reason we launched growth. We are so surprised at how much bigger the market is today than it was even five years ago. And that's why there's going to be an enormous opportunity at the seed stage all the way up through growth in the next five years. The talent wants to work here. The economy is telling us that this is an important segment now. Regulatory is telling us it's a must-have segment. And so I think our space is woefully underfunded. And so when we thought about how do we capitalize, we felt we had to scale with the opportunity because very few others were. So maybe just more of a logistical question, but just for the venture strategy, typical stage, typical check size, lead, board seats, et cetera. And then same question for growth, just to kind of frame uh, how to think about the firm for listeners. Yeah, for all the entrepreneurs out there, we'd love to talk to you if... So software and capital light business, our venture strategy is series A to C. We have done no revenue businesses and ventures up to 10 million. The average is about 4 million in annual revenues at investment. That's an important inflection for us. Usually it means you have enterprise accounts, you have some revenue sophistication, and that's an important part for you know, a big check. Our average upfront check in ventures is $15 million. And we've led every deal we've been a part of for the last three and a half years. So we are term sheets, board seats, usually a board observer seat as well. And we really want to be that partner and work with you know, other existing names in the ecosystem. So that's ventures. So 4 million-ish average entry. Our growth strategy, it's about 30 to 50 million of revenue, just to give like that step change in approach. And it's about a 30 to $50 million check for every deal as well, board seat, board observer. And then I'm so curious about the thesis definition in terms of what goes into defining the thesis? How do you staff and resource for it internally? And then is it like a one-time exercise on an annual basis or at the outside of a fund? Or is it something that's like living and breathing and evolves over time? Yeah, we have an internal document that tracks the areas of interest for us that are going to be active next two years and then like two to five years. And it is, we actually share that with the LPs going into a fund. We say, you know, we're going to do five investments per year which is pretty focused for a venture firm. When we construct this portfolio at the end of three years of 15 companies, you should expect these are the segments you're going to get exposure to. That really helps the LPs know where we fit in ecosystem. I found that's very helpful. Some firms do more infrastructure and deep tech. When we describe our areas, it comes across as very specific. And I think that helps them frame their budgeting process. Talk a bit about the current thesis. Yeah. So it's funny because the times change, and yet I still think we're in really early innings for a few spaces. The electrification of mobility, the electrify everything theme, wind, solar, heat pumps, the whole space. There is a tremendous impact opportunity just by moving from heavy hydrocarbon to renewable energy and re renewable electricity. 
we are highly focused there. I think it's a next two-year opportunity. And then, you know, one of the subtle and secret best buyers of climate products is the industrial world. It's the built environment, it's critical infrastructure, it's transportation firms. And so we've found that if you have a service or software that helps them accelerate their path to sustainability, they have enormous budgets. And so we're focusing a lot there right now. Hey, everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. So random question, thought that I have is, I'm thinking back to my founder days, but I would imagine for a thesis-driven firm like you, you aren't going to invest in the first company that you meet in the space. You'll, it's kind of like looking for a house. You'll uh, go to that first house and be like, wow, this seems great. We love it. But we're not in a position to buy that house because we need to run the process and look at houses of different shapes and sizes and also look at other houses of the similar shape and size and get us in refine our criteria in the context of the broader market. As a founder, I understand why it benefits you to talk to everyone in the ecosystem before making a decision. If a founder catches you when you're early in that thesis development, what incentive do they have to, to talk to you and be forthcoming with information? Great question. You're an LP again. I'll get you to be an LP in, in our firm. What we've done historically is we use that LP base, the commercial one I referenced, to get a lot of information. We do these deep dives. They're you know 30 to 100 pages long. And we do all of that with existing intel before we have to go speak to a founder. So we're actually, when we are reaching out to a founder, and hopefully many out who are hearing this know this, we're actually usually giving them the first 20 pages of our deep dive. You don't need to educate us. We're not like that West Coast tech firm who has an associate running climate for them. We know your space. We've studied it. We know the customer need. You're going to take the meeting with us, hopefully, and we're going to introduce you to a few customers. And that's the value. And so we do that most of our, our deal connectivity, it's growing inbound these days, but most of it's outbound. And that is how we originate. That has worked well. Most of these founders are very frustrated when they have to describe what climate is to a generalist venture firm. Do you like engaging with these companies when they're in a process? Or if you're first engaging with them when they're in a process, is it too late? Too late. Our average is about nine months. We call it the midair refuel. Our best processes are when we've got to know a company, we create a process, make some intros, we listen to a sales call, we give feedback. We see how they respond to that feedback. And they say, hey, listen, you could wait two years to raise, or we can you know, create a step up from the last round and, and get in right now. Existing investors tend to be complementary to us, and it's worked well. And it's helped us kind of not get into the very competitive process, which can happen in other areas of the early stage environment. In terms of the LP base, well, it'd be helpful to understand the chicken egg between having the capital to deploy and having a track record of companies that you've backed that can be case studies of what the LPs would be buying if they invest. So just like, how did you kind of navigate that chicken and egg in the earliest days? And then it'd also be helpful just to understand what did the LP makeup look like in that initial fund 
And then how has that evolved over time? The chicken and egg one is a doozy. It's funny, we get asked from a lot of the institutional LPs these days, like, show me your 15-year track record here. And short of very few funds, like you had Ben on last week, they'd be one of them. They have a good record. You don't want to know the track record of anybody who's doing this for 15 years. <laughs> it's not good. Like, you couldn't have done it and been that successful unless you started more recently. Our message to them has been, we're going to hire people from industry, I know you have as well, who respect the customer, who respect how this industry is different, and we'll find the right companies. But realistically, this is a strategy that was born today. It was born in the last five years. You're going to benefit from the returns by being early in an early fund manager. And that takes an evangelist, just like full stop. It takes LPs who have some belief outside of returns, probably in a first fund, to want a fund like ours, like yours, to win. And so got to kiss a lot of frogs. We probably took a thousand meetings, the first fund, probably more actually. It took about two years from start to finish. Now, a third of the capital is, was corporate in that fund. A third is institutional, so pensions, endowments, and then you know families. Families have been the backbone of the climate space. Like Realistically, to get this space going, high net worth, big family offices have gotten us to today. The pensions, the endowments, they've been excellent. We've, we have a few that have been here since the beginning. But most of those big institutional firms are going to show up in like five years. And so kudos to the big family offices that have supported the space since 2016. And now that you are on your second fund in the venture bucket and you have the, I think, the first growth fund that's fully raised, what are you seeing in terms of how the LP base evolved from fund one to fund two? But also, what's the crossover of LPs from the early stage to growth? Is it, you know, how much overlap is there? And to the extent that there's different types of LPs there, what, what do those LPs look like? So for us, we've benefited from a few more institutional limited partners showing up. These are sovereigns who've shown up. Actually, the problem with our space has been they're coming usually from oil and gas. And they're saying, we have XYZ dollars in oil and gas. We need to step that down over time. We're looking for climate or climate infrastructure investors. And the amount of capital that oil and gas had sucked up in the last decade, our space is actually more capital efficient than oil and gas. Like, full stop it is. And so these firms look at funds like ours and say, we need to deploy more capital. And so it's created a big opportunity for SPVs, we found, which has helped bring them in. That's probably been the biggest surprise, which is institutional LPs are now showing up for a second fund in our space, which is nice. Still full support from corporates, it's a competitive advantage. It, the, the check size and the ability to scale up when companies scale is what the institutionals have brought. How do you engage with the corporates and how are they involved in the fund and with the portfolio companies and how much of that is uniform across and kind of guidelines versus case by case based on the, the needs and capabilities of the specific company? It's a great question because it's it's really bespoke. So we, to this day, and I know this is an anomaly, have a monthly LPAC with our top limited partners. That includes the different stakeholders I mentioned, institutionals, families, and a few corporates. In addition to that, about once a month to once a quarter, depending on the corporate, we have a catch up with them. And we actually, we try to speak with different members of the organization to learn about their budgets, the problems they're trying to solve, et cetera. It's usually us asking them questions and asking them about kind of how they see the future so we can better inform our investment process. They want financial returns. They will not sacrifice. They don't want to lose money. But if you don't deliver within a fund some strategic insight, customer relationship, channel network opportunity, they're probably not coming back. There's definitely a strategic intent 
for some of them. And it's about, you gotta balance it. We never sacrifice the companies. We always put them first. We always put our investment first, but we do believe that you can serve both parties well. There's certain climate purist circles that will look at the fact that you're a software only firm and they would say, you're not a climate firm. It doesn't matter if you invest in software for climate. If you're only doing software, you're not a climate firm. You know, we need to move atoms to have any meaningful impact on the problem. Why software only? And also, how do you respond to the people that might say such things? I thought you had a great answer online, just so you know, which is climate buyout, climate growth, climate software, climate hardware, climate infra. We need it all. We need it all. Full stop. There's not one solution to, to believe there's one solution is not to know how the system works. The best example we have in our portfolio from Ventures One is Aurora Solar. It's pretty well known at this point. Probably the largest software company in climate, full stop. The average rooftop solar system in America costs about $30,000. 10000 of that is hardware. The hardware has declined by 98% in the last 12 years. It's the soft cost. It's permitting, it's installing, it's designing. And that is where software does best. Software does best when the hardware cost has come down enough. And now we need to put as much of that hardware into the real world. But again, we're trying to drive impact and change now, not in 10 years. So when nuclear comes and there's a software for it, great, we'll help. But for today, we believe that there are great investors who do infra and do do deep tech. They will do that. And then we will help those technologies scale. If you look at a software venture firm or a software growth firm or call it a software fund or a you know, venture fund or a software growth fund that's more generalist in approach, but that similarly goes out and likes to get to know the companies with long runtime and has looked at the, whatever sector they're evaluating before they come to just like you do. Is there any difference between the sport that you're playing and, and what they play other than the fact that you only do it within companies that are trying to accelerate the clean energy transition? Again, another great LP question. I would say this. The climate tribe, and you guys have done a great job defining it, knows its people. It knows those who are here and who will stay. Part of the reason we changed to capital was when I was in this space in 2010, 2012, everybody left. Every journalist who claimed they were going to do this for a decade, they all left. We've actually seen the exact same thing this cycle. Everybody who was going to focus on it has moved on to generative AI. Those who care about this and are doing this for financial and impact reasons recognize the firms like yours, like ours, who know that this space is different, requires different attention, requires a different go-to-market, respects regulatory. The space just operates different, full stop. And when a generalist tries to come in and say it behaves like regular software, like they don't believe it. The, the entrepreneurs don't know it. Like they know it's different. And so it almost helps sell our case. It is it is a question we need to keep monitoring is will it ever converge? Maybe 30 years from now it will. But for now we think this space behaves more like healthcare and health tech than it does other areas of the ecosystem. How important is climate motivation to as a criteria for the founders that you back? Almost every investment we have, we can trace a direct impact to climate. In a few of the deals we've done, they didn't have a climate goal, but we knew the technology could be addressing climate. And so we actually brought them to climate. One example is a firm called Site Tracker which does, they were in telecom and they were helping decentralized telecom 5G towers and the operators deploy them and maintain them. And we said, oh my goodness, the EV charging and rooftop solar ecosystem will be the same. How do you help EVgo? How do you help Volta? How do you help ChargePoint deploy their chargers? And SiteTracker has become the default backbone for the entire North American and Europe EV charging network. Almost every network is deployed and managed through it. That's helped them scale. And they had zero energy revenue before we joined. And so we take that thesis to some of the companies. 
And then when they see the impact, they get very motivated by it. But I think this is the point of the space. Like you have to be creative to address all aspects of the climate opportunity. If you step outside of Energize and just look with a bird's eye view at the climate technology innovation ecosystem, and specifically the capital stack, what do you see? Where is there oversaturation, if anywhere? Where are there gaps? Where are the biggest pain points and opportunities? That's a great question. So first, I think the whole space is undercapitalized still. I believe that the talent that decided to work in this space in the last 18 months is going to create an enormous number of pre-seed, seed, and later stage opportunities in the next 36 months. We need you to be like a, like a $500 million seed fund, Jason. Like That's how big we need you to be to serve this opportunity. Although our strategy breaks when we get over, say, 150 or so, but that's another issue. So just raise it every year. We could get more global. That's something we think about because either we need to start playing the more traditional sport to grow our assets under management, or we need to stay disciplined about not raising our fund size as we look beyond this vehicle, or we need to get more global and bring on one or two partners in other parts of the world. But anyways, I don't want to derail. No, that's perfect. It's global. So like, out of curiosity, what percentage of your deal flow do you think is, your, is international? If you look at the companies we back so far out of the, I think it's 82 companies that we backed as of this recording, 84% of them are in North America. So we've got some global reach. We're treading carefully, but it is an interest area to expand over time. We just don't want to get over our skis and, you know, North America is where we are. But like Europe is arguably ahead of North America on all things climate, mobility, approach to energy transition. Hasn't gone well for them for some reasons that I think are good lessons for us to learn. Theoretically, my guess is if you had three partners in Europe, you could do another 50 deals you know, in the last few years. It's the opportunity there is big. I look at where the, the opportunity is. And I just say it's, it's everywhere. Venture, growth. I don't know credit well enough to know what that means, but it does feel like the big asset managers, the Apollos, the Blackstones, they've all gone into infrastructure because that's big dollars, easy fees. The work we're doing is like company building work. It's harder. And it does have to be more of a craft job than kind of just bulk asset deployment. I spoke with another growth investor in climate recently, not on camera, but what they were saying is that they were frustrated that there's not a lot of early stage companies that are mature enough to pop up on their radar as where the fruit is ripe enough that they're even worth tracking. What are you seeing? The market and how you define growth really defines what scale you know, means here, but launched Energize. I don't think there were many companies in climate with software capital light services with more than 50 million of revenue. Like there's, there weren't many. In our first ventures fund now, there's six or seven that are over 50 and approaching 100 or more in revenue. And to me, that just shows the growth of the space. Everybody is going to be surprised at how big this is in a few years. So I have no doubt that big growth funds will show up in the market in like six or seven years again. But for today, you really need to be a student of the market to know where the opportunities are because they are there. You mentioned that most of what you do is outbound and that it tends to be out of cycle. Who and what level of people within the firm tend to do that outreach? And what is the typical entry point in terms of how you frame engaging with these companies? The sourcing in our space, the outbound I mentioned. So the deep dives that we run when we're trying, we have the problem and then we try to go find the software, the solution that'll help solve the problem. Every person on the team, myself included, has at least one of those at any given time they're doing. Usually it's about two or three. By the time of a second meeting, I'd say a principal, if it's an associate, a principal has joined, but a principal or partner is joining if it wasn't one they originated. We have principals take board seats here alongside partners as well. And so it's, you have to be very creative. But one of my most fun stories has been 
couldn't get one of these entrepreneurs to speak to us recently. We found out what charity they like to donate to, and we donated to the charity, said this was, you know, we did this, will you take a meeting with us? And then took the meeting, and we actually made the investment. So again, like, there's no code to how this space works in venture overall, but our space, it's okay to be a little different and weird, run it your own way. There's no playbook like there is in other parts of venture. Well, it's reassuring to hear that that's true because we're certainly not following much of the playbook over here. Or we're following a playbook, but it's not a not a playbook that's been followed many times before. Yeah. Yeah, you're making your own plan. That's like that makes it more fun. Like this is going to be a 20 year journey, 30 year journey. You better do it your own way, or you're going to burn out. And what are you seeing out there from an LP standpoint, just in terms of some of the turmoil and uncertainty in the market over the last year plus and heading into 2024? You're seeing some of this too. For 2022, late 2022 and early 2023, it felt like every reason, every meeting started with, we're going to tell you no, but we'll take the meeting. (laughs) And you just have to persevere through that with the LPs. They're also looking to see who will persevere is my hunch here. So the sentiment, I would say, is already far improved versus six months ago. And I'd say the, the kind of the budgets for 2024 from the allocations for LPs are becoming available. But there's a lot of skepticism. I think a lot of generic, more, more mass market limited partners showed up to our space in the peak. A lot of them got big exposure to SPACs, which have dramatically underperformed. I joke that like clean tech is no longer called clean tech anymore because it became a four letter word. So much money was lost in 2008 to 2010. And so her whole goal as emerging managers right now needs to be to prove that this space will deliver financial returns. Nobody will do it just for the impact metrics. The growth in revenue, the growth in gross margin of the businesses ultimately will be the reason that more of these LPs continue to show up. What are you seeing? Uh, what are we seeing? I mean, we're a little different because we're out raising our, it's our second fund, but it's our first with a traditional structure and first time including institutional LPs. And I think historically it was all strategic, well-placed individuals who backed us and that was by design. And uh, and directionally, we didn't want to lose that inclusivity, but we wanted to bring in an underlying layer of more sophisticated capital. And so how that's manifested is large family offices. It is the outsourced CIOs that work with those types of families, some of whom are introducing us to other clients and some of whom have discretionary capital on behalf of other clients. It's the subset of fund of funds that are serious about climate. It's the subset of endowments that are serious about climate. Once you get much beyond that, like the big pensions and sovereigns and stuff like that, we're just too small. And the other thing is just given the macro, and so that was kind of MCJ specific, but given the macro, I think it seems like a lot of the big players are sitting on their hands. It seems like the ones that aren't sitting on their hands are kind of going with old trustee, which puts emerging managers in a hard spot. And it also puts climate in a hard spot because while climate is almost bipolar in the sense that on the one hand, it's newer and um, people have still have scar tissue from 1.0 and where's the DPI? But on the other hand, there's like the tailwinds of doom and all the big net zero commitments and the IRA and the increase in the flood of talent. And so it's like, well, gosh, it both feels inevitable and impossible at the same time, right? Um, which is a pretty weird place to be. Perfectly summarized. You know, perfectly <laughs> summarized. I have nothing to add. I think those that persevere and invest, my father-in-law says, the easiest form of diversification is time. Don't try to time the market. Just do the same amount every year. Those that persevere through this market will be the brands of the future in our space. And I, I fully believe that. I believe you will be. I hope we will be. And I think the entrepreneurs deserve it. 
fundraising in this environment feels a bit like graduating college during a recession or things like that. But to give it a different spin, it feels a bit like, you know, when my son's out shooting hockey pucks, giving him a weighted stick to use. Or if you're out marathon training, training with some bricks in your backpack, right? Because it's like, or, or, or training when it's like exceedingly hot conditions relative to what you'll be doing on race day, right? It's like, if you can thrive in that environment, then once someone like unties the hand that's behind your back, you're going to feel like a hero. It feels a bit like that. It's like, gosh, when the markets open up even a little bit, we're going to feel like life's on easy mode because we, you know, we headed out to experience life when life was clearly on difficult mode. Yeah. And you have a team, like you have the experienced team who's been through this too. I've felt like if I didn't have a team, it would be very hard. Like you need that group to rely on, commiserate, the highs are high, lows are very low in raising a fund in a firm. So like that balance is critical. That's what helps you get through it. Well, one, one question I have is just, I mean, I mentioned that we're too small for the pensions and sovereigns. You mentioned the pensions and sovereigns in terms of some of your LPs. And I don't need to know any names, but I'm just curious for the ones that are participating in the sector, do they tend to have dedicated climate or decarbonization mandates? Do they have separate teams that work on it, separate pools of capital? Or, you know, is there a consistency in terms of what you're seeing across or is it case by case? And what are you seeing? The biggest difference between 2017 and raising in 2022 and 23 was there are now dedicated groups at large institutions for energy transition, sustainability broadly, but like there are now groups with pools of capital. And it's coming from, some of it's coming from the oil and gas or the real assets world is coming to the climate world. But there are, there are now leads who have to deploy capital and need to, to map the space. That's resulted in a, a ton of first meetings where you know they're just mapping the market, which is fine. But at least they're here now. That's a big difference. I'm curious if, if you felt the same. Yeah, in fact, actually, it, you could ask me the same question when I asked you the question about, you know, why should a company take a meeting when you're in market mapping mode? Like we get some big endowments are starting to come in and saying, hey, like we're not in deployment mode. We're in market mapping the market mode, but we have to stop, talk to you. Like you're, you know, everyone keeps, keeps pointing to you. You're one of the key players in the space. And so we'll take the meetings and invest, you know, even if it's very low probability that they'll come into this vehicle because directionally we're just trying to play the long game and believe, you know, similar to the whole like time diversification, like we're just going to put one foot in front of the other day in and day out. And if there are people that we ultimately want in our tribe, it doesn't matter if we can have them now or not. Yep. Perfect. You have to take it. You're not going to take it. You're not going to say no. Right. I think the answer is even if they're market mapping, you're going to take the call. It's long-term relationship development. The space will need more capital if you want to go international and, or you just want a new fund in a few years like those, you have to develop it now. You talked a bit before about some of the tangible criteria like revenue targets and things like that when you make investments. What are some of the intangibles that you look for beyond the, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the key metric thresholds that an algorithm could suss out? The financial KPIs are just one equation. We have six ways to evaluate a company. There's the product, the market, the team, the economics of the customer contracts, the deal, and then the impact. We rank everything zero to five at our firm. And if you are kind of nothing gets funded unless the average is like 4.5 or higher. The deal is only one part. There's so much other, and the customer economics is only one part. The true intangible for us is the entrepreneur and the team's respect for the market. Do they recognize this is different? Do they recognize that this is going to require running through walls, going to DC, having to do probably a few more pilots than you'd want to, having technical innovation goalposts move on you a little bit? It's just a hard space. And so we want to see somebody knows what they're getting into, has has run through the wall before, and will run through it again. And 
it's hard to test in a two-week competitive process, which is why we do the kind of the average of nine months before we invest of knowing somebody. We make customer intros. We give them feedback. Do they listen? It's just a big part of being successful in this space. Everybody wants to do well until it's hard. And so you have to see once it's hard, did they, did they persevere? Just what we're doing. What are some examples, you know, assuming it's a software company that fits all the criteria that you laid out and stuff like that, what are some red flags for you or things that you just won't do? I think it's what's important to note is that there's impact as quotes exhaust, which is, okay, it happens. We're not investing because of it. And then there's impact because there's intent. We fully do believe that both of those are aligned and you don't need to make sacrifices. And so knowing that an entrepreneur really believes that is important for us because there's a lot of ways to spend your time. This is how we choose to spend ours. We want to know that we're aligned in mission. So like that's important. And then the other angle, the biggest red flag, and we've seen a few of these in our time, is continuous pivoter. The number of firms I've seen that did blockchain that then took their blockchain solution to some other form of the carbon markets is crazy. They're in it for the cool tech. They're trying to find the market. That never works. Like never works. I think we want to find people who are in it for the solution and then the tech is the second level. Funny that you say that because um, in between uh, RunKeeper and when I started MCJ, tried to start a company and I got the band back together with my co-founders from RunKeeper and we had a tech and we were going to build a studio because it was a new tech and we were going to experiment and try to apply it to different markets. And it actually might have worked out quite well financially. It was a really fun area to experiment. And I think the tech had applications in a lot of places in interesting ways. But what was really missing for me was purpose. And I, I just found myself clamoring to start with the solution and then work backwards to finding the best way to address it. And so I ended up giving the money back to our investors and then heading into climate because I felt like I was doing things in reverse. And kind of like you said, you have to do it in an area that you are really passionate about because it's so hard that otherwise you're just not going to be able to stick through the ups and downs over the course of a long journey. Yeah. You have kids. I have I have three. I love telling them what I work on. And then we all have mentors. I mentioned Michael Polsky earlier, his co-founder, a guy named Jim Murphy, these are people who've been in climate and successful for 40 years, like way before it was a thing. Knowing that you can create a career, have tremendous financial impact and tremendous environmental impact. I think once more and more entrepreneurs see that these pioneers have created, it's only going to create a positive impact. And so I'm very excited for what's about to happen in the next 10 years. I think we have no idea how big the space is about to get because of how visible some of the successes are becoming. It makes me nervous because we have to like build a firm and you have to build a firm to, to be ready for that. It's just a generational opportunity. What would you say if you had to pick one thing, what's the biggest thing that you're worried about that's within the purview of what you can control at the firm? And then same question about something that's outside of your control as it relates to your ultimate success. Oh, that's a good one. I'd say the number one thing we can control is the people we hire and the culture that we instill. We are a firm that doesn't have deal attribution, despite our LP's insistence every time. We are a firm that, you know, we make five-ish new deals per year. We do everything together. It's a we, energized we. I think you can control that. I think that the moment you let somebody who's counter to your culture come in, it can ruin it. I love that I can wake up and know we have the right team. The hardest thing in our space in general that we can't control is the public perception to our space. Whether we like to believe it or not, most big financial players, governments, customers, LPs, they read the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and USA Today to learn what they're learning about climate. 
I hope in the future they are also listening to your podcast and your series. But that's where they're reading. And so I wake up and I'm like, oh, there's another article saying that EVs are bad for the world. Just sets us back. It just does. And so that's frustrating, but that just makes us work harder. I, I'd love to throw it back to you. What, can, what do you think you can control and what can you not control? I mean, we can control putting one foot in front of the other, trying to be intellectually curious and undo knots of areas where there's nuance and lack of understanding and build bridges and not only help to get more talent and capital into the space, but help it get allocated and anchored in a way that is productive for the transition. That's what we can control. What we can't control, you know, it's kind of like, you know, heading out sailing, like you can control the boat and your preparation and the sails. And I'm not a sailor, but like a lot of things you can control, but you can't control what kind of storms you're going to face along the way. You can't control like a shark attack. You can't control, you know, another boat not seeing you and like going right in front of your path as you're outgoing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, similar to you, we try to control the things that we can control and we want to check the weather report and check the maps and build a plan and factor in our surroundings and seasonal patterns and, and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, um, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face, as Mike Tyson says. Well, great. Uh, John, um, for anyone listening that's inspired by the work that you're doing as a firm, who do you want to hear from and how can we or listeners be helpful to you and to energize? Yeah, I'd say energize. What we're trying to do is help accelerate the sustainability transition. We love working with co-investors across the board, earlier stage like yourselves to later stage. We are always trying to find more entrepreneurs. So if you're any of those and you don't know us yet, please reach out. I think this ecosystem can be an example of fostering collaboration. And then maybe part two, and this is as a tribute to you, Jason, I don't think people realized how much of a gap there was in understanding our space until MCJ and your community came on board. If today is like literally inning zero of, of the baseball game, anything that we can do at Energize to help support MCJ and the community, like let's do it together. Like let's do it. We want to do it. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words beyond the, the, what you just said, which is perfect parting words. Let's do more investments together. <laughs> I agree. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for all the work you're doing at Energize. Thanks for your support and belief in us personally as an LP and looking forward to doing more with you and the Energize team and with everybody that's working to accelerate the transition. LFG. Let's go. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion... Let us know that via Twitter at MCJPod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.